What's up, guys? This is Pat, and before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder to please hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. Also, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, at The Founder Hour. All right, here we go. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And I'm Posh. And we're here today with Greg Steltonpole, founder and CEO of Califia Farms, as well as a bunch of other things we'll talk about. Uh, we're excited to have you on the show. Uh, thank you for being here with us. Thanks, guys. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, so I know there's a lot going on with Califia Farms, but we want to take it kind of back to the early days before, before this whole thing came about, just to kind of learn about your backstory and you know, definitely you know, shows kind of the whole journey up until now. So um, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what you were like as a kid. Um, well, I, I count myself as being super fortunate to have grown up in some of the earlier days of modern Cal- Southern California. And um, my parents moved out here uh, when I was about uh, five or six years old. Mm-hmm. And, And um, they, well, I was born in Florida and, um, my, my dad worked on, he was a systems engineer and his first job was helping to build bridges in between the Florida Keys. So I was Mm. born down in the Florida Keys. And this is in the days when it was kind of still part of the Caribbean bases, Mm. you know, basin and feel it was really not developed and, and it was, the, the fishing was amazing and it was really kind of an environmental paradise. And in that day and age, and, you know, I was born in the late 50s, and when the uh, growing up then, there was a different attitude towards children just kind of exploring in the wilderness and being alone and right. at an earlier age. So when we moved to Southern California, my dad was part of the defense industry by then, and he was working on um, missile programs that were in Vandenberg. So there was nothing there. It was purposely chosen because it was a remote area for them to do all that. And um, so I was a kid. Just, we lived in the edge of a <clears throat> not even an undeveloped suburb, uh, and I could just wander. So I grew up just kind of being part of the environment and mm. feeling at home, wandering around in the woods and stuff. And then we moved during my early childhood probably five or six times oh, wow. uh, throughout different areas of Southern California. And um, then my dad always got two weeks off, and he was an outdoorsman, so we always made sure it was a major camping trip to one of the national parks, first in California and then expanding throughout the West. So I grew up in what what's really called the Basin and Range Territory, which mm-hmm. extends from sort of upper central Mexico all the way up through the Rocky Mountains and over through the Sierra Nevada and all those areas in between. And um, I first became a, or later became a geology major, and, and um, that came about just from my love of these landscapes. And these landscapes are really dramatic because basin and range mean range of these fault shifted big mountains right. and then the these kind of basins that are sort of desert or brush like. And that area is massive. 
and it you know it's part of mexico it's it's part of all the way up into parts of northern california nevada and all that so i grew up just ended up not only in the places where we lived wandering around but also camping hiking and then i became a rock climber in those Mm. early days so adventure and and kind of a little bit of risk and all that just was part of my psyche you mentioned the moving around a lot um how did that have any effect on sort of your social life like making friends like i know as a kid like i moved my my, my, i moved around a lot too here and there you know having to move schools and you have have to make new friends all the time and some people have it easier than others in terms of you know interacting with others how how was that for you were you able to handle that really well right well i mean i i say you you become good at handling it but there's always some when you're especially adolescent you know you move junior high time high school time you get socially not always fully adjusted and and, yeah. and things happen but in that period of time and I, I think maybe from my own perspective as being a slightly older entrepreneur i've been through a series of some decades right mm-hmm. and there's the decades of growing up and then there's the decades of launching different company different companies tackling different parts of the food system in different decades mm-hmm. so my growing up period was also really uh, I was impressionable partially because I sort of missed the 60s and all the benefits of the free love generation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I came in slightly at the tail end of that uh, around Earth Day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this guy, Dennis Hayes, who was one of the early pioneers uh, of setting up uh, the concept of Earth Day. So I was born into this environmental activism period just as I was in high school. Mm. So one of my first acts was to publish an underground newspaper, uh, you know, and and we had an article about animal rights and plant-based thinking, even vax of my sort of years. This is like the the 60s? This is like uh, 1970, you know, and that's, I think Earth Day, I can't remember, was either 68 to 70. Yeah, yeah. So not only was all this revolutionary talk going on about uh, social things, but environmental things as well. And socially, relative to this question of adaptation, and people who are military brats, and my dad was in the military, but it was like being in the military because he was associated with it, right, was busing. And I, I lived in San Bernardino at the time, like one of the homes of the Hells Angels and kind of a rough neighborhoods. Um, like I'll, in the home of one of the Hells Angels? Well, no, the oh. hell, home of the Hells Angels. Oh, I see, right? I see. <laughs> They were rumored to have started yeah. in, in uh, San Bernardino. Right, right, right. Uh, so it was kind of kind of milieu, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where where their culture was born. And um I I had the opportunity to actually volunteer for an opposite busing thing, and they you know so they were bringing uh, African American kids into my high school, which was a you know sort of more white upscale neighborhood, and then I volunteered to go to to one of the schools the other way around. I so I was one of the only white kids for a while in this one program in an like more inner city school. And it was a fantastic experience for me and, and completely contrary, actually, to the kind of experiences where 
of being in the predominantly white school where there were a lot of tensions, fights, and, and kind of right. gang, gang-like behavior. So the way I was treated and the, you know, the kind of respect I was shown by even kids in, you know, in junior high school, I mean, yeah, there was some more like prove yourself, stand your ground kind of thing. Yeah. But by and large, they, I was really embraced. And I, I just, that, that clued me into a kind of multipolar world or, you know, multi cultural kind of framework was a real solution to, to, to things more than, you know, problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. And Greg, how were you like in school? Were you the person that, <clears throat> you know, loved going to class, loved studying and learning, or were you more so just, I know you talk about being this adventurous guy. Was school your thing? Um, not really. I, I mean, I, I loved, um, I loved learning, but I didn't exactly know it that way. I liked learning up more on my own, and I liked learning experientially, which is why I like you know the woods and the outdoors. But but I think I was kind of a disruptor. I got bad social. You know, if they grade you on your social thing, I, I usually got bad marks because I wasn't that helpful to the teachers. But I didn't know that was probably early entrepreneurial roots. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, yeah. part of it is politics in classrooms. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I was a good student. It ended up at Stanford and, and you know, sort of felt the same way there. I also felt I had a little bit of the rebel attitude because that was also at a cusp where Berkeley – of course, was was much more of a radical hotbed. But at, at the time I first visited Stanford, it was also more radical. But then they started cleaning up the recruitment program and started changing the profile of the students they were attracting. But Stanford had this amazing program in which you could design your own major. Mm. And at that period of my life is when I got to, uh, because they there was no such thing as an environmental major at Stanford at that mm. time, and this is in, you know, the mid-70s. Um, I, to this day, I think it was the first environmental sciences major. Really? And um, So you, you I, sort of created your own, like, um, curriculum, sort of? Like, like, exactly, like class schedule right. and stuff? Like yeah, you would the, take from different areas of the school? and Exactly. Yeah. And so that was a, a you know, multidisciplinary mm-hmm. major, and and the way Stanford got around the whole hierarchy was you just had to satisfy some other degree yeah. as a component of it, and then they'd say, okay, you could. What just was that for you? Add, and that was geology. <laughs> okay. It was earth sciences major essentially, yeah. and and then, but I got to take a class called values, technology, and society. Uh, I got to take uh, you know water engineering class, and you know I got to take things that really gave me an urban planning class mm-hmm. um much more of a i would say holistic. social holistic systems thinking i you know and i still think that's a major gap in american style education 100%. and we we tend to create these verticals so even in the way we think about designing companies the way we think about solving problems in the food system if we could roll things back and really give people big picture perspectives and then solve for the whole rather than you know just define things in these narrower ways so um you're you're at stanford and you sort of create this major for yourself what was the vision 
like after college for you? Like, what did you think? What career path were you going to go down? You know, as an environmental studies major, which at the time, like you said, wasn't even a thing. So I'm assuming in the in like the in the professional world, like there weren't people looking for environmental studies majors, or maybe there was right. in other colleges, but not Stanford. I don't know how. Yeah. yeah. Well. Well. There was a thing, um, but the thing was to was really polarized, um, and there were a few schools that might have had you know some environmental science uh, definition to it at that time. Elsewhere, I didn't know about them at the. Well, actually, I did. I, I achieved part of the major by going to UCSC, mm. and UCSC was a, a brand new University of California system school mm. at that time. And had uh, a course taught by Gregory Bateson, who wrote this book called Ecology of the Mind. Great fundamental book, which brought together systems thinking into the idea of consciousness and cognitive behavior and all that stuff. And of course, being in the Bay Area, I was close to the Esalen Institute. And Esalen was bringing all these leading thinkers you know, that were thinking systemically and and uh, they did lectures and other talks in yeah. the Bay Area. So before just fully answering that question, though, I think just to roll back one little bit um, and honor, you know, I think one thing I've learned from also being around the American West is just the impact of Native American thought, um, which was really ultimately the inspiration for one of the inspirations for Calafia. So um, in going around the American West, you just find that this environment is not very forgiving. And so the appreciation of what it took to not just survive in those lands, but actually thrive, mm -hmm. and uh, was something I really admired and, and got exposed to Native American knowledge of um, plants and, and so on around just how much diversity, how much categorical thinking there was, how much extensive environmental application that Native Americans were applying to um, landscape, like actually shaping the landscape. Mm. Um, and this is immediately applicable to California today in the way that fire control was used and, and managed and actually somewhat mastered by Native Americans. And, and of course, a lot of people don't even know that Native Americans were here for over 10,000 years, factually proven so far, and it may even extend back, you know, to double that. So um, we, you know, my own background, though, earlier than that was shaped by my parents and, and the, the how different they were. So I mentioned my dad being involved in the defense industry and German background, systems engineering, highly structured. Um, and then my mom was a French Canadian and she was a professional chef, had always been in the hospitality industry. Hmm. And I always think that people in business, you know, there's a lot of business theory out there, but she taught me the whole concept of two big concepts. One was presentation matters. Yeah. <laughs> which has to do with design and gets into all that other stuff mm -hmm. when you start talking about the ins and outs of CPG brands mm -hmm. and stuff. But it, it rolls back to something much more basic, you know, which is just serving food and that food is a presentation mm -hmm. too. The second thing was that um, 
she was an early woman entrepreneur. And in a day and age when that was really not the norm at all and not celebrated, certainly, it was almost threatening. And then she was also a manager in the 60s when and managing large, you know, food service operations and so on. And so um, I was exposed to having a mom who just every day I'd, I'd have to go after school and hang with her because she had to work late yeah. and she was a single mom and, and she was running her own restaurant or she re- she had her own restaurant she ended up managing you know big food service operations at country clubs and Got it. you know stuff like that so she had a lot of employee issues and you know she was managing chefs and mm. you know things that would go wrong did go wrong i saw her put a person who they did a flambe and the the customer caught on fire oh, because the the <laughs> bananas foster got spilled somehow mm-hmm. and i started like jump in and roll the person and you know put the fire <laughs> out like yeah. live you know so you know just things you, you know as a kid you absorb things so like crisis management responsiveness like no boundary on the hours understanding that work doesn't start and stop at nine to five and then, you know, I had this sort of super serious side with my dad around structuring your thinking and, and, and like hierarchical organization and, and just heavy science application. And just um, when I got to Stanford, I also learned a big lesson about leadership around how talented and how much genius there is in the world. Yeah. And, you know, as a freshman, I show up there thinking I was like hot shit. And, you know, <laughs> I, I studied in this little library with this guy who didn't even come in with any books. And he just like just be writing notebook after <laughs> notebook. One day I looked over at his notebook and it was like these physics equations. Oh, geez. And he was just proving theorems out of his head. Yeah. And I was a freshman. And that meant today care, you know, is Elon Musk. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah. <laughs> I learned the relativity of intelligence and... Right. It made me always comfortable hiring people much smarter than myself and, you know, didn't worry my ego, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, did you, at this point when you were at Stanford, did you have, you know, being exposed to both your mom and dad and their work life and seeing, you know, and learning all these these things um, and being exposed to them, did you have this like entrepreneurial bug in you? Like, did you know you would one day want to run your own business or were you sort of, you know, still at the, at the time, you know, I'm, I'm assuming like it wasn't as encouraged uh, as it is now to like go and start a business after college. It's still not right, that encouraged. Right. So yeah. How, what were you yeah, thinking? Yeah. Totally. Totally. Not, I mean, <clears throat> there was ironically, despite the American dream, you know, I mean, especially if your parents sent you to college and, you know, spent some money yeah. and, and then all this other stuff. And then I had student debt and all this stuff to pay off. So it, it wasn't the most normal thing. But to roll it back to the environmental movement at the time and the jobs and that major. So here I am. I graduate. I got this degree. And there's only two, two job opportunities. Like I could have worked for the Sierra Club for nothing and fought the at that time was close to the exxon valdez and the alaska pipeline and all this stuff so there was a lot of opposition to the idea that there was going to be all this disaster to this pristine environment and then or 
I could have had a really high-paying job working for one of the big oil companies doing these environmental impact reports, which basically were like a greenwashing of what they were doing. So at that time, there was just this, like, fight the bad guys or, you know, be, like, sell your soul sort of thing. Yeah, like go and like for me, because yeah. I was like, you know, this kind of getting early. I was camping and rock climbing yeah. and stuff, so... I wasn't going to do that. For you, right? like, going and working for those corporations no, was just, selling yourself. It wasn't even, yeah. like, yeah. I didn't going, even, You're going to the dark side. It just yeah. wasn't <laughs> even a consideration. Yeah. So what I was left with is, you know, some native skills, and I had some carpentry background, so I I wanted to pay off the debt, so I, I did some carpentry, and along with... your own? Yeah, my, my stepdad was a, a building designer, and I worked for him in the summers, mm-hmm. so knew how to build a house and that kind of thing. So I had some practical hand-driven knowledge, you know. Um, and and when I, I kind of went through that period, I was living in Tahoe and built a house there and went on this juice fast. And I had been started to, you know, when you're in, in the natural world, you do start, it's an easier pathway to thinking about herbs or mushrooms components you know thinking like that so and plus i lived in california and you get exposed to all that stuff so i went on this juice fast for a week and um you know i was building a house a lot of heavy physical labor and my mind got blown by at the end of five days of fasting and it was this hard fast and then you eased into it with the juices for about another week and then finally you went on to the other food. But how did you how did you get into that by the way? Like was it like a thing back then? Like people were juicing or uh, juicing was starting to be a bit of a thing. Uh, and this is this is now in the, you know, later seventies. Yeah. And um, it was part of the natural food movement at that time. I'd say it was one of the key things that you thought about doing. Mm-hmm. And so I went through that and I thought, damn, I feel awesome. You know, I have all this physical strength. I have those vitality. My thinking is really clear. There's really something to this. So that was when the seed got planted for starting Odwalla. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you're what, in your like early 20s now? Yeah, or I'm in my early 20s. Yeah. And also to mention, I, I think I read somewhere that you were, you had a, you, we talked about it off the podcast, but you had a band, you were a musician. Um, so this was like around the same time or, or was well, it a little right in, right in transition. So I okay. finished this house in Tahoe, moved to Santa Cruz, got together with some of my buddies. We decided to go back and, and study at this music school together, a group of friends called the creative music studio in upstate New York. And these are this like <clears throat> you and your friends just had a passion for music and wanted to maybe pursue like starting a band and. Yeah. Touring. Yeah. yeah. Well, we just wanted to get little, I didn't study music formally in school, so I just wanted to get a little more like intensive background and training. Um, and I don't know, for those of folks listening to the podcast and they're like, go, where's the business stuff? You know, mm-hmm. but <laughs> I just want to tell you this, yeah. you know, hang in on this part of the story because like some of my biggest lessons were learned through this, you know, uh, fortunate to have this year at this special school. And this was like a master's class in improvisate primarily improvisational music, which I was interested in. 
And it was taught in a system of one-week blocks where they would bring a world-class master of, of something, and it was world music mm. at the time. So one week it might be a tabla player, one week it might be a Brazilian percussionist who could play the whole range of instruments from Brazil, another week it might be a, you know, a concert pianist, another week it might be you know, one of the world's best sax players. Mm. You know, so it was awesome. And you would actually perform the music. So what, as an impressionable student, you got exposed to the way that these creative people solved musical problems, solved compositional problems, and just their creative process. And you realized how many ways to tackle something there were mm. and how much you know, creativity was really just a white space yeah. of what your passion was plus refining some skills and then just rehearsal and going over very small modules over and over and over again until they got, you know, really perfected. Mm -hmm. So also the funding of that school was almost an impossible and Herculean task by the founder, this guy named Carl Berger. And Carl used to call this concept he introduced to me called creative financing. And what it was is really the entrepreneur's trick of planning this vision in the mind of somebody and getting them to trust them enough yeah. with their cash. Right. <laughs> when, huh, interesting. When, when sort of all odds are against it, right? Now, this was a nonprofit, but the 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 practice is the same is the same you know you mm -hmm. still have to do the funding pitch right yeah so i was exposed to these ideas so together with my mom's background as as being brave enough to have some of her own businesses i didn't even really know it but i had all the basic elements of entrepreneurial training right. even though i hadn't put in Put it together. Right. It's like one of those things where it's like a byproduct of what you're doing. It's like just ha it happens to be there, but you're not you're not necessarily looking at it from that lens at the moment. Right. Yeah. And, and like and in it, hindsight, you saw you see where it was. Exactly. And even in high school, I'd add a little business on the side that I made signs and you know just like did some woodworking and got money for it. Right. But you know you don't even think about that. You know because right. you're thinking these big things, my career, and you you think it's all this this is massive some decision to be part of some something else. Mm -hmm. And one day, I mean, this is a literal truth. I mean, it is like, it's a crack up, but I was in a bookstore, like thinking like, and what this is back in, are you in, this is back in, I moved to Santa Cruz. We yeah. were playing some music. Yeah. We had finished music school, you okay. know, come back to Santa Cruz, broke, yeah. worse than broke. Like, what are we doing like now? Like borrowing from the girlfriend and everything, you know? And then like, I find this book of 100 businesses you can start for $100. And um, I look at it and it says, you know, open this chain of lemonade stands, you know, like little pop-ups. like. And then I was saying, eh, I don't know about retail. Like my mom was in retail. I was yeah. sounded like a lot of headaches. And I was thinking, oh, like, how could you do that like wholesale or something? Yeah. And I said, well, I can make like juices. And I so I connected this juice fast and how I felt and how great it was. And I go, you know what? Like, I don't know about lemonade, but fresh squeezed orange juice is like something that I grew up with as a kid. My dad always insisted we have it. And in those old days, orange groves were all over San Bernardino and that part. Mm. So I had this romance about, 
you know, the smell of the blossoms. It was very visceral to me, like yeah. real, you know. So literally, um, well, I had been reading this philosophy book, too, that said, you know, you can only evolve so much in knowledge. And if you don't have life learning and life practice at some point in parallel, then your knowledge will never be able to be truly useful to others mm -hmm. or yourself. Yeah. So like I read that one day, I found that book the same day. I put two and two together. I went out box, you know, bought a box of oranges for eight bucks. I borrowed, I think 125 bucks from my girlfriend and bought a hand squeezer. And the next day literally started the business well, so it was a business from day one? Like you were like, this is going to be a business. I, I got cash money, man. I was like, that's a business. <laughs> yeah. But like and, you, yeah. And you like called it Odwalla from day one or was it just like you were just bottling it up and selling it to whoever you could? Yeah. I had a little meeting with my friends the night before. We said, what's a musician you know, friends? I do this. Yeah. We we're all musicians. And uh, I wanted to call it Jedi Juice. And my girlfriend said, cool name. My, my <laughs> girlfriend said, I don't think George Lucas will like go yeah, along I don't know with if that. Love it. So I said, okay, what then? And, and at that time, we had this favorite band, uh, this art ensemble of Chicago, really crazy group of musicians. And um, they had this song called Odwalla. And uh, we always loved it because it had an epic poem that went along with it. What does it mean? Like, was there a meaning to the word? Or? Yeah, there actually, you know, later we found out that there was this incredible meaning to it. And Glad it was incredible and not the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you find out afterwards it means like something really bad. Yeah, yeah. really. And, and, and some great screw ups have happened to, in when people took brands to other countries with it. That's right. That's yeah. right. But um, no, in this case, uh, when we finally talked to the composer about it, he said, oh, it came in a dream in which his dream was that the earth itself, the planet, was trying to talk to man, to people mm. about the, what it was going through. And, and he said that that was the language, the, the word Odwala was a, a word that the earth was using. Mm. Wow. So, that worked out perfectly. So that, that is awesome, <laughs> especially today. You're right. You know, yeah. uh, although this is an Odwala. But, um, and, and then the other weird thing about the name was I, when I researched it later, there was a, in the late 1800s a, uh, a thing called the Odd Force, OD, and it was considered life energy and, as defined as this current of life or energy, kind of like magnetism that would flow through things that were living. And that was called the odd OD force. Mm. And so a walla is also a Persian word or in, in, in all through India. Yeah. And a walla means a master. So you have a, like a chai walla is someone who's a master of pouring chai and making chai. Mm. So that, that word odwala happened to be master of life force energy so we didn't know any of that yeah, stuff yeah, you, after, yeah, yeah. later you make all you these know, cool stories like after you like learn all these things about it yeah and, we spun yeah, it into yeah, the yeah, pr yeah. <laughs> but um no but, it, it was it was awesome and i guess you know um that naming and founding is 
I think, a super precious period uh, that is not always fully appreciated by people. Because a lot of what you do afterwards yeah. stems from the vision and mission that 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 name represents, right? Like it is it is important. A lot of people say it isn't, and I, I think both of us agree that it's really important because you know that name just sort of resonates throughout your company for years to come um, because it means something. It's a it's a vibrational footprint, like yeah. literally, you yeah. know, and, and I think that. Part of the, you know, what I think is a, a, a additional challenge nowadays is that people have become so facile at manipulating all these elements of brands mm. in, into this quick and easy check the box, make sure you got all this stuff, and you know, brand pyramid, and, you know, architecture, and mm. you know, you know, color, everything's all slick. But, but like, you know, not to gripe about it, but there's some grit to actually massaging all that stuff and having it, some of it evolve organically. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that way, you know, the bona fides of it, which is what people actually really respond to energetically, you know, aren't there yet. So, you know, in a way it's, it's, um, you know, it used to be frustrating to go to Expo West, for example, where all the brands, yeah. and it was so bad. You know, I thought, oh, damn, the hippies need to get their act together, you know, and yeah. like get, get a little few brand principles in there, right? But um, now it's almost the other way around. Right. I mean, it's you like know. It's cool to be there. Yeah, and it's almost like posturing for the VCs yeah, and private yeah. equity guys, and we know, and it's a little game between the bros, you know, to, to like match it up, but it, it it's um i don't think there's any going back because we need to scale these solutions yeah. and i think the the awesome diversity of the way entrepreneurialism is in this food industry natural foods is is amazing yeah yeah great why don't you talk to us a little bit about the early days of odwalla i know you talked about you know bottling up that orange juice originally but you know how did you start it who did you start it with and how was that journey like early on well, it's certainly, and I'm sure you'll want to talk about it later, Vercalafia, you know, a different thing here in, in this century and starting a modern company that, that, that scales and so on for <clears throat> impact. But in those days, you have to flash back and go early 80s. There was no Whole Foods. I mean, Whole yeah. Foods was just starting at the same time as a few yeah. stores. Like distribution and, wasn't as... There was no UNFI, like no, you know. There was no route to market and then we chose the stupid thing of a refrigerated short shelf like like you couldn't punish yourself more so if you want a master class on masochism like i'm here i'll be you know but the the thing was that only people who were really dedicated to it were drawn to that you know so the advantage was it was a cadre of true believers that would just like weren't going to take any obstacle as a no, you know. It was just like we'll figure out how mm. to do it. And um, to me, just making that amazing bottle of fresh squeezed juice at that time, and then being able to save every penny and then expand the line into these like mango and I, I, I mean, I think. I wish people, you know, I don't know if anyone was around at the time, but in the 80s and 90s when these were raw juices that we were, we had armies of people peeling bananas and, you know, doing 
taking these fresh organic strawberries right there from there were the no coast like massive facilities doing it like packing it for you no we well we always manufactured our, yeah. everything ourselves and it and it was um kind of a race to automate um so we didn't burn ourselves out so yeah. you know that solving basic physical manufacturing problems were a big part of the early days of all that but we self-funded the business for 10 years and wow. uh you just hardly ever see that. Yeah, it's anymore. very hard to. And do that, that was just from that hundred twenty-five dollars that your girlfriend gave you originally. Yeah, and then we well, we went to some bank loans, you know, but always. Where, where, where were you selling it uh, um, yeah. at the time? Since there were no like Whole Foods and markets like that, where were you selling Adwala? Well, we remember we started squeezing for restaurants, so we'd be called what a food service startup, really, because we served restaurants that. The waitresses or the staff didn't really want to squeeze the juice, mm-hmm. so it wasn't and like a direct to consumer thing. You were you were not not initially, no. And then then as we got a little more sophisticated about the concept of a brand, you know, saying oh we could have make up this brand that'd be fun, and mm. and we started going to local markets. So today you call that UDS up and down the street, um, that kind of business and single serve. And then the business really took off uh, because there was little competition at that time. And then we were solving this just-in-time distribution problem. Mm -hmm. So um, the scaling of Odwalla in those days to a $100 million-plus company as a raw juice company, we had to solve all kinds of things in terms of manufacturing efficiencies, just-in-time distribution, data gathering, demand planning, yeah. all that kind of stuff. When we were basically a bunch of, like, for the most part, um, inspired post-hippie, like, natural foodies, right? Right, but, like, also here you are, like, this is your first venture. You've never run a business before. I, I don't think you had, right? You were. This is, like, you're learning. So early on, like, what, what were some of the challenges, I guess, for you personally um, when, you know, you you... You start this thing and it starts taking off. I'm assuming there's a lot of challenges and problems that come your way at that point when you have to grow the company and manufacturing has to be efficient and all that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, remember at the same time, you know, I was hanging out and, and you know, had some mentality of a musician and, and a lot of friends in the art world. And so initially it was just, well, you had to have a VW van too, but if you played music, and you had a van, you could kind of mm. be part of California. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Odwalla. And, and that that early, like, we called it the friend pool. You know, that early friend pool attitude was like almost semi-socialist, you know. Mm. Um, poor Bernie had to defend that term, you know. It's like, <laughs> damn, yeah. feel sorry for that guy. But, you know, it's like there was just this all for one and one for all attitude. And that got us through a lot of stuff that ordinarily just would have taken more extreme funding and, and pitches, which we probably wouldn't have convinced people it was really going to work, right? And then I had this this massive, um, well, good fortune of there was a local credit union in Santa Cruz, a very progressive around business lending. So they became our first lender. And uh, we helped change the law in the U.S., and I went to D.C. to help make and move the the limit for small business lending from credit unions up to a million dollars. Oh, wow. And uh, in those days, I don't know where is it now, but um, that that was some a significant thing. Yeah. 
Um, and then, you know, I ran into, because of the location of being close to Silicon Valley, this was another just, I think, kind of part of the DNA and even part of Calafia's DNA today is this idea about rapid evolution, adaptation, testing and learning, and, and really just um, being excited about making a better future, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I had the good fortune to meet Steve Jobs in those days, and Steve was a huge inspiration to be a mentor uh, because he literally told me um, when we had, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this, you know, recall that we had in the late nineties. But when I was talking to him, he said, Greg, you, you make amazing, this juice, you know, and he was a vegetarian and just a a complete raw juice freak. And Steve just said, Greg, you you can pick up the phone and call anyone in the world. I was going, ah, come on, you know. And he goes, hey, you know, when I called the, you know, designers of Ferrari back when we were just a punk, you know, little tiny startup Mm -hmm. and and started developing this design relationship with some of the most impactful designers in the world at that time. And he says, you deserve, you're doing a great thing. You deserve to be able to be heard if you need some help. So it's just like, a few conversations like that really give you like the empowerment confidence or self-confidence. Yeah. Just like my mom's natural mastery of food gave me the self-confidence to make big decisions about product quality, you know, and where to draw the line and how to set a bar. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I think it's really important to really look at, at your own roots and where the strengths in your roots are, because those will sustain you through your whole career. You were obviously doing this for a while during this time. Were there any other companies that came and did the same thing as you guys or, or got into the same space or, oh. you know, was it just like, cause I'm trying to think like, were you guys one of the first ones to be into this movement and, and be one of the first brands into the space? No, I think we were the first one to solve some problems. We were by no means the first in the space. There there was a company called Ferraros in Southern California that reached back with roots even into the late 40s. And, you know, the natural food movement really got started, and there's a lot of fascinating history not to go into today. But, you know, early utopians that started coming to Southern California first in the 20s, you know, when the out of the silent film industry and a lot of creatives came here. And because of the climate, uh, some of the early, there was a group of German guys who, who actually lived in Palm Springs for a while, who had these really utopian health ideas mm-hmm. and ideals. Then there was a small community in outside of Pasadena and Arcadia, and these became these kind of nodal points in these health food stores. That concept started to be hatched. And they usually had a juice bar. And that juice bar would become kind of this community gathering mm. point. But it wasn't like a yeah. branded CPG. No, Ferraro's actually started distributing fresh-squeezed, uh, fresh-pressed apple juice in Southern California earlier than we did. Mm-hmm. And there was a company in San Diego called Escondido. Uh, there was a guy up in um, Santa Cruz called Mr. Naturals who was doing so smaller kind of local companies. Yeah, they, it was all, yeah, very small. 
And then, you know, um, the guys at Naked Juice uh, were selling juice on the beach and they saw what we were doing and they started commercializing down here and got the Chiquita company to back them mm-hmm. kind of early on. Um, and, uh, you know, um, but it was like-minded people. So there was always kind of this brotherhood of the juice thing that went on and happened. And this guy, Gregor, who became the, um, uh, started happy planet up in Vancouver, up in Canada. And he became the mayor, actual real mayor of Vancouver. Mm. Uh, So (laughs) there's this network of, you know, juice being this kind of, early ambassador for the natural products movement Mm. because it was a badge you carried around take it to work you know the mobility of it was was kind of brought that on you talk about the recall in the late 90s why don't you talk to us a little bit about what that was all about well we went through this incredible growth period you know through the 90s and in 1996 we were about a hundred million dollar company and sorry around how uh, how long were was like you started the company we started in 1980 so we were 16 years old at the time which is like a long like that's a long time to like uh, to have a thriving business yeah yeah well it's not the overnight sensation thing a lot of people you know yeah (laughs) aspire to but um you know and we partially got into it because we we're all broke musicians who just we could live off the juice. We knew that as a backup plan B, you know. Mm-hmm. But and when we got to that scale, um, we had brought in some engineers and people from companies like Tropicana, and and I think there were <clears throat> cultural differences around how the company should be run and. And some of these people were not as fanatic, I would say, about um, the product uh, as as the core founders were. And one of the things that um, happened, we got a call one day from this Department of Health, and they said, hey, some people were getting sick from ap- fresh apple juice, and your product, they think, had, you know, was was there. Um, in some of these people's diet, their purchase patterns. So we were faced with this really hard decision around, do you, do we wait and find out if it really was ours and, mm-hmm. you know, like prove that it was there and, and risk like you know, even more cases. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, the lawyers didn't like it, but, you know, we kind of pulled the council together and just said what, what do we really stand for? So made the unusual decision, I think, in, in corporate behavior to just proactively go out, get the media, call attention to the whole thing, and say, if you've got this in your fridge and you got kids or any compromised immune system or anybody with this apple juice, just, you know, we think it could be a risk. Mm-hmm. We don't know yet, but just dump it out. And then we we fortunately had a DSD, meaning direct store delivery system, and we could, within a matter of days, literally pulled all the product off the shelf. And, and you were in, like, how many stores at this time? Oh, you know, hard to tell, but probably at least six or 8,000 stores, yeah. probably. And um, that that became the backbone of our responsiveness, and, of course, went through all kinds of the usual things that corporations go through and lawsuits and and so on. But in the end, it became kind of a case study because I think 
the real learning was the to be proactively uh, accountable and and acknowledging it, but also and not trying to say, well, it was our supplier that mm-hmm. had the apples, or they did something, and you know, we'll just point the finger somewhere else. And also proactively reduce risk for your consumer, you know. So I wish that lesson would have been fully learned by all companies. Mm-hmm. And and also there was a lesson for the fresh produce industry around E. coli itself as being something that is a environmental uh, risk factor for lettuce, for spinach, and and for even higher acid products ultimately like orange juice where they've had problems with listeria, for example. Mm. So um, lots lots of hard, hard lessons, and I wouldn't ever want to do it, go through it again. Yeah. Uh, but I also think that those kind of things, entrepreneurs tend to think about what didn't work just as much as any success, and, and that's really true. Mm-hmm. Um, that that you know there was a lot a lot of things that um, I just think about a lot harder now uh, as we grow or go through high growth periods. So yeah, super big learning experience for for lots of folks if they look at it. Mm-hmm. How much longer did you stay at Odawala? I stayed through right before the till the till the Coke acquisition was finalized and um i was on the board up up until that time which was so I, I had i had become uh not left being ceo just two years before that which was what year uh 98 i believe yeah and then it got sold to coca-cola uh right and they bought it and they took full ownership of it in 2001 and they still own it they still own it today yeah I think they, you know, there's a lot of struggles that they're having with it, but that's, I don't know if you want to go into <laughs> the whole post, the whole issue of how acquisitions, right. big company, small founder cultures, deep well, issue, probably the number one area of interest for me besides right. the environmental. Well, I guess, part. I mean, let's talk about that in a sense that, you know, this is a company that you ran for so long and it was a sort of, I'm, I'm assuming it was like your life at that point. I mean, that's like what you're doing. Um, and then, you know, this, this thing happens where you're sort of forced to sell it because I'm assuming like the business wasn't doing as well at that point and you, you, you no. didn't want to sell it, right? Did no, you? I didn't. But I, I had a very strong financial partner from, he came in in the early 90s, a guy named Stephen Williamson. <clears throat> and Stephen um, had very good relationships with uh, a more diverse group of the financial community than I did. And you know, our first funding, major funding, came through um, Bill Hambrick, who was a pioneer in Silicon Valley and, and early venture stage funding. And he's the one that took us to an IPO project mm. um, as, a, as a very innovative kind of financing mechanism in those days. So we did our first IPO at $7 million in sales. Mm. And then we did a follow-on. Wow. actually became in the NASDAQ at, I think we were 18 to $20 million in sales, mm. raising, you know, I think less than $20 million. So it all was public at the time when yeah. it sold. When, when uh, it sold and when it uh, actually went through the recall and so on. So lots of drama around running a public company, high growth in those really early days. 
but super interesting. But, you know, I, I did all that through hiring people, like I said, and Stephen was really a great finance guy and uh, brought a lot of rigor to the company and we got a great CFO. Um, but once Coke got a hold of it, they actually left it alone for a number of years because it was so small. And as it grew under there, some a few door openings that Coke was able to do, I, I think they got it well over 200 million for a while. But then they collapsed it back to, uh, to, to an Atlanta kind of situation, shut down the manufacturing that was, that was always the heartbeat of the company and things like that, which dramatically changed the culture. Mm-hmm. And also just management styles and rotational. Management rotation, like rotating CMOs in every few years, rotating you know CEOs, is, is just really tough on on a kind of a culture that's a passion mm-hmm. culture. Right, and I think I read somewhere, like kind of going back to um, you know your experience coming out of college, where you were kind of faced with these two decisions, and you were you sort of felt like you were selling your soul to the to the devil by going and working for these corporations. Is I think you, you know I, I read that you sort of felt that way selling your company to like this like larger behemoth. Is that true? Like, did you, well, was that hard for you to like let go of that and have to now do something else? Well, the irony of that whole thing is that the outside world and I think finance community, Oh, Greg, you know, successful liquidity event and all this. And, And it is great. I mean, you, you have to, I did pretty well by that and, and it is an achievement and it is a recognition. So yes, you know, kind of milestone, but in point of fact, given the food system has to change, and I think the biggest conversation we should be having at some point is really what is the role of the food system in a planetary crisis period, mm-hmm. which we are definitely in. And having come from Earth Science Systems, and you know, mm-hmm. I don't care what political affiliation anybody is, yeah. like, I don't care what word you put on it, but we are in this Anthropocene where the effects of the uh, human impact on the very thin layer of this atmosphere, which is going to now affect geology and logistics, you know, and where food is grown and how much or what we can grow when, all of this is at play in a super dynamic way right now. So how do human eating habits affect that and what is controllable and what isn't, you know? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. that's really the big question. So when it comes to things like, you know, who should own something and all that, I think what's the best structure for getting the job done? Mm. That's the question we should be asking. And I happen to think during these high growth periods and and during you need a, Mission-based entrepreneurial leadership is the best way to mobilize the team and the energy around that mission. And secondly, you just you have to build the systems as you grow, and that needs a certain type of managerial um, mentality. And that is not generally present amongst pure corporate people mm-hmm. or pure finance people who have always operated at that higher level in a high, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of a top down situation and they're used to much more resources. So the resourcefulness is not always present in that type of 
in right. town. Yeah, that makes sense. Greg, when did the idea for Calafia Farms come along? Was it directly after, you know, Odawala was done or did you have <clears throat> a chance to take a break? I mean, what did you do and when did Calafia Farms start? Finally, we get to talk about I know. Calafia. Thank you, guys. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Great question, but it, and, and it was a bit of serendipity too, which which uh, I always chuckle at. So, you know, when you're doing things that don't always have a defined outcome of certainty and so on, so as entrepreneurs, there's a lot of complexity management that has to do with making decisions in life, and you don't always have all the facts. Right. And as much as we try to put in all these big data systems and AI now and all this stuff. At the end of the day, a lot of times you have to make a decision based on other uh, pattern recognitions. Yeah. So one of the pattern recognition points I always look at personally, so don't think I apply this all, all, all the point yeah. always uh, in business, but in life, I look for like simultaneity and multiple signals from my environment that whatever I'm thinking about or about to do or want to do, something lines up mm -hmm. in a more, in a like a really noticeable way. So <clears throat> we didn't talk about a company that I did that plane didn't work. That was called Adina for life. And this is um, between Odwalla and between Odwalla. And, and so just quickly as we bridge into Calafia, um, I was working with this. It was a, such a great vision, but I partnered with this, um, African entrepreneur, a young woman who had a vision of restoring BSOP, which is the national drink of Senegal, which uses hibiscus. And Coke and Pepsi had moved in and, and supplanted the natural, healthful, really great beverage from this great flower, the hibiscus flower, and it's called Jamaica in the mm -hmm. Caribbean. Um, and now that wasn't hardly there. So her dream was popularize something in the West, which the Africans at the time always idolized Western products. And then it could go back to Africa and, and become mm. popular again. So that was our idea. So I was helping her do that. And we were growing this little company. And we got money in from our private equity group, I think, too early. And then too many bosses got involved. Mm. Uh, and... Finally, I just said, look, you know, we had like a great guy, Roger Enrico, former chairman of Pepsi, was an investor. And Roger's passed away. He was a great guy, but he had, you know, his son involved. And we had another entrepreneur involved. And it was just like too many cooks in the kitchen for me. So I left. And I was really sad because I got a lot of my friends were investors in the idea. And I like, torqued up a lot of interest in it and yet you know it's the first time i ever quit anything like that i started be like a, bad to the point personally for you to like walk away from something yeah i was i was hard <laughs> you know yeah so the next day literally kid you not um the next day I, the phone rings and there's this guy um working for burn evans who's now one of my current partners and uh, he says, hey, Byrne wants to talk to you about tangerines. I know you have a background in citrus. So I flew down here to L.A., met Byrne, and we talked about his vision for popularizing this brand called Cuties. Mm -hmm. 
uh, all over, and it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, literally, because it's an easy peeling, you know, citrus fruit. So kids literally can peel their own fruit and all that natural vitamin C stuff. So talk about a healthy business. Mm-hmm. This was awesome. And I said, I support that. I said, but what's the problem? And he said, well, the problem is it's a food giant food waste issue in that 20% of what we grow, we can't sell because it doesn't look good enough for the consumer. It has like a black dot on it. Like a cuties has to to be cute. We got our brand. It's got to be, can't have the little blemish and all that stuff. So he said, could you help us, you know, solve that? So like figure out like another revenue model that could be with right, those for that 20%. Yeah. And, and you're talking about now this is the largest portion of California citrus business. So yeah. like this, is, this was big. And even at that time, it was approaching a hundred thousand tons a year of this, you know, byproduct that was going to just cows. And mm-hmm. so I, I said, Hey, I'll take a look at it. So went back to burn and burn was partners with his, you know, Stuart Resnick was one of the other largest entities in the world in farming. And these two guys, you know, um, wrote a check, uh, burned first, and Stuart participated for a while. And and then, um, you know, we created this plant that was specially designed to process that and handle it with TLC and actually get the juice and make a great juice product out mm. of it. So we still sell you know, tangerine juice to this day. And you're still one of the partners for Cuties or? No, no. Well, that, um, that's a separate business. Got it. But Byrne really incubated Califia, uh, out of his, uh, out of his, um, you know, kind of empire of farming businesses. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of being partnered with farm, you know, farmers, because ultimately I felt they kind of usually got the short end of the stick in in the total piece of the pie. Mm. So to have farmers own equity at the beginning was a great model for me. Mm. And I still think for any entrepreneurs out there that that the idea of entrepreneurship or the idea of, you know, partnering with larger brands, but being able to be entrepreneur and sharing the equity in some interesting ways, which is what we did. And and I, I kind of developed with Burn a earn up because I didn't have the cash to put in, and and we built a, you know, twenty five thirty million dollar plant right out of the gate. So he had a lot of risk, and um, so we grew the business uh, that way at first. Uh, this is Califia. Califia, okay. yep. you know, this was, but it wasn't the brand. This was we were just processing the citrus, and then um, two things happened. Um, Byrne and Stewart went their separate ways, and I only had half the volume to work with at that plant. So all of a sudden, the whole business model was out the door. Mm. And I could see it. I could look around the bend and kind of see. I I anticipated that was going to happen. So I started looking at what what would be an alternative business model. The other thing is I had developed a liver disease, and I had a deformation of my my bile duct system and I started getting a severe liver, liver disease. So in the same year that we were exiting this fruit business and I was thinking that plant milk, that almond milk in particular could be the way out and how we could use this plant as a manufacturing asset. And 
at that same time, I started getting sicker and sicker. So um, the sort of origin of Calafia's idea of a brand and a product line came out of that period as a, as a need, a necessity being the mother of invention. Mm. So I went to Expo West, and at that time, um, I think Blue Diamond had come out mm -hmm. with almond milk. And I put it in a cup of coffee, and it just turned into this, like, turgid, like, coagulated mess. And I said, I, you know, and I actually, my stomach did not behave well with lactose. So mm -hmm. I was really looking for a personal solution and didn't really like soy that much. So like probably millions of other people, you know, was sort of disappointed by the state of plant milks at that time. Mm -hmm. So literally, I said we gotta we gotta find a better way, and we call it something different, something better, sort of our byline here at Calfia. But we just said it's got to work in coffee, period, and yeah. that became because that'll help with the mass adoption of it, right? Because it was still sort of early on, I would assume in the in the like industry life cycle part where it's like people need a better solution for it to become a, a, like a massively adopted, right? right. Yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, in business parlance, they call it unique selling proposition and all that stuff. And and also, you know, Byrne was a type of partner that that didn't like losing a lot of money. So, and he didn't like marketing budget. So we came up with this shape of a bottle mm -hmm. that I felt what well, was inspired by. You know, I really love French design and mm -hmm. French watercrafts was sort of something that I saw and I thought, you know, this tulip with a golden mean and this tulip shape and the ergonomics of it are awesome yeah. so um but the main thing was when you stuck it on the shelf it stood out from that sea of carton containers that everybody was using mm -hmm. which is like the biggest one of the biggest rules of like merchandising is like you want to stand right. out on those shelves <laughs> visual field design disruption you know so exactly. it's like and we just managed to pull it off, and it saved us in those early years where typically you would have had to spend on some kind of marketing mm -hmm. to get recognition. So the design did all the heavy lifting. We we got our foot in the water against the big guys. We had a break at the time. Whole Foods had a had a private label program that that they had a production problem, and bingo, we just stepped in. Yeah. Helped save the day for them, gave us some volume, and, and then we just took off from there. Yeah. You know, having obviously ran Odwalla and now, you know, running Calfia Farms, what has been, uh, you know, a very noticeable difference for you in terms of the two companies and, you know, the people and overall just like the industry and the climate yeah. of CPG? Well, I think the biggest answer... <clears throat> that is so striking to me is in the early days, we were the visionaries trying to convince people that these products were better for you. It's a complete inverse today. I mean, today, the industry is not caught up to what people want. And especially when you look at it, whenever, you know, the old expression, wherever you workshop, play, learn, you know. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. Yes, in Whole Foods or yes, in Air One, great stores like that, you'll find, you know, a, a cornucopia of solutions to everything. But if you're in an airport still, if you're, you know, in a food service environment, 
still many schools have very regressive purchasing policies. Mm-hmm. It's still kind of a food swamp land, you know. Um, we and, and and then neighborhoods. We got like food apartheid is really the way it should be looked at, you know. These, you know, distribution systems are not set up to serve the population bases that don't have the the leverage to attract these, you know, high-minded high, high type stores. So lots of work to do there. But that's the big sea change. Mm. <clears throat> the food system has failed at this point, right. their leadership role. Yeah. It's now, you know, scrambling mm-hmm. to connect. And I think from, and then you add the planetary imperative on that, and you're saying, especially from a plant base, because you're talking about a 60 to 80% re- reversal uh, of carbon impact and, and in many cases depending on the situation up to four times mm-hmm. so when it comes to methane and impact and all of that so i think plant-based is more than just some diet fad it's not at all like that it's just something we cannot support 10 billion people off of this animal-based economy and, and food system because economy and ecology are now so interlinked mm. that um you know, the time to act is now today, you know, every day and, and lessen our food print as an individual person. Mm. You know, one question I've always had, and I'm, I'm glad, you know, I can ask somebody like you is why in the world do they call these nuts, nut based, you know, product milk? Like, why is it almond milk? Why is it, you know, cashew milk? Like, if it's not coming from an animal, why is it called milk? Well, I think, you know, when you, first of all, it's, it's, it's a fun question and, and, um, I think it's not that productive to get in a tiff around legislation and and what some people in the dairy industry, not all people, but some people like to draw the line that it's the, you know, lactating secretion of the ungulate and so on. So, I mean, to me, the word, if you trace it back, it's a verb, actually. So milking, the act of milking, which is milking is removing a substance, a liquid substance from from something. Mm. So you can... It can be anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you can milk an idea, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> so... Um, Makes sense. And, yeah. and in the, the term is like looser than what most yeah. people think. Yes. And yeah. in fact, a lot of people don't know that in the Middle Ages, when there was no refrigeration, that almond milk in Europe was actually the dominant form of so-called a milky substance. Mm-hmm. So that I think milk also means like nourishing substance. And, you know, as mammals, when you come from being fed uh, directly from our mothers. So... I think milk has just this kind of archetype role and meaning that goes beyond some kind of state-defined definition of mm-hmm. what I'm allowed to say. You <laughs> Makes know, sense. Milk or not. Um, I know it's been about ten years now, right? Since running Calfia, and and you know you've you've grown to I'm sure like tens of thousands of stores at this point. Um, I know you recently raised a a big round of funding. I think it was like two hundred twenty-five million dollars or so, and. Um, I guess what's coming next for the brand, for the company, where do you see it going in the next, you know, five, 10 years? And and I guess for your personally, do you see this something, do you see this as something that you will be involved with, you know, for the rest of your life? Or is it, do you have other sort of plans for yourself? 
Well, you packed a lot in there. Yeah, question a lot of questions. There, but um, so remind me if I don't hit no hit on them. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> um, if I could say uh, first of all, when we say into the future, and, and um, I love that word, um, and and we it, even from the beginning of the company, we called Calafia a food and beverage company of the future. And what we meant by that is of the future, meaning the food system, you know, has led to a bunch of issues. It's solved problems like distributing calories very efficiently, efficiently, but it has also created, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of unnecessary impact that we've got to kind of unwind back from. So of the future means that hopefully we have a food system and, and a sense of ecologic design that co-emerge together. And that emergent system is what I'm really talking about of the future, is emergent design. And um, But I also think that it's kind of like back to the future. And that was why we used the word Calafia in founding the company. And, and I was personally inspired by it because... It's the origin word of this place that I grew up and loved, mm. you know, called the land of California, which was coined by the Spanish after this woman who was this Queen Calafia in a novel that was written back in mm. I did not know that. I lived in California my whole life, too. And right. I did not know that. And I've only met a handful of Californians who actually, <laughs> who actually know the knew. whole story. Yeah, I've never right. heard that. Most of them are African-Americans because she was a woman of color depicted mm. that way in the story. And and even when the founding of the state, there were versions of the state seal that had her, you know, uh, on the on the state seal. And, you know, we're kind of reexamining that. And there's some petitions that are out there to change the state seal back to Queen Calafia versus the the whitewashed Minerva, although she was cool too, but you know, (laughs) she wasn't really part of the story. So the, um, you know, the opportunity to base something on a sense of place was really important to me because we were taking produce and the oranges and the land of California was the bounty and abundance of this California landscape and, and climate that allowed the citrus industry and like some, crazy percentage of the of the u.s produce is you know all growing out of this great central san joaquin valley so that concept Mm -hmm. i really like that idea because that said this is where we're from and as the company in this fundraising you know that you mentioned brings us on to more of a global stage you know we like to talk about the principles of California and not only the land, but the whole attitude. Mm. And, and that's also what we like about this Queen Calafia story because she was like a badass who just, you know, went out and took things in hand, was a warrior, you know, raised an armada, um, was also humble enough to realize she hadn't seen enough of the world in this story and, mm. and went out to, to discover other cultures. <clears throat> so I think it's like this weird precursor to the spirit of innovation that exists in California mm. as a whole state and, 
and the kind of people that are drawn to California in the sense of you can be you, you know. So we sort of view it as this unleashing the queen within, you know, kind of potential in everybody. And um, also, I think this kind of destructive dialectics between conflicting generations against each other and and as much as I love and admire Greta Thunberg from what she said, I also think we 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 as older generations need to provide, you know, working models where we're solving the problem to answer their cry. So we use this word like plant the future mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. our job. And and it's so literal and, and material, but at the same time it's it's you know it's a kind of more epic call to action. Yeah, I love that. Well, I'm personally really excited to, to see what the future holds, uh, not only for us as humans, but also for, you know, you and Califia Farms. Um, so I appreciate, you know, you being on the show and sharing your story and we can't wait to see uh, what comes next. Hey, Thank you, you guys Greg. are awesome. Come to Expo West and see what we got. We got plant yeah. butters. We got, you know, we, we've also mashed up uh, some really um, regenerative crops mm-hmm. like peas and oats together. We've got high protein milks coming out that really solve one of the big problems that, that plant milks have had in the past. Uh, and trying to, you know, come out with really healthy approaches to keto and things like that. So the, the company is really trying to apply the money we've raised to solving problems. Awesome. Love yeah. it. Can't wait to see where it goes. Okay, okay guys. Thank you. Thank you. Loved it. 